This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. It's spring in the Northern Hemisphere, even while snow is still making visitations to parts of North America, gardeners across the hemisphere are itching to get started with their summer vegetable gardens. That age-old and annual question of, when should I put in my warm summer plants, is already high on people's lists of garden excitements and anxieties. I am so pleased to be joined this week by the leader of an event and author of a book both known as Tomato Mania. Scott Dagg is the owner of Power Plant Garden Design in Ojai, California. He's a dedicated home gardener and a self-proclaimed tomato maniac. It is Earth Week, and among the garden's earthiest pleasures are these succulent summer fruits. Scott joins us this week from his home and trial garden in Ojai. High, where he is deep into the planning for the warm season vegetable garden. Welcome, Scott. I am so pleased to speak with you today and share all of your enthusiasm about this beloved plant. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Jennifer. Well, it's good to be here with you too. And yes, we're deep in. We, we are deep. That's a, that's a good way to describe that at this point. Depending moment. on just how warm it gets, how quickly in California, the question is like, when is too early to put your plants out? And it was, I think, 75 here yesterday and nice sunny and wildflowers popping everywhere. But uh, luckily, you can look forward in the forecast and say, it's going to get down into the 30s again next weekend. So just hold on a little. <laughs> just hold on. Um, exactly. <laughs> It's, it's hard to wait. It's, it's really, it's really hard to wait. And we do have those fluctuations still in, in mm-hmm. most parts of California. Uh, not many. I think yeah. most of us do. So it's hard to wait. If I were to ask you to describe for listeners, your current garden mission statement for your own gardening, like practice and heart, Scott, what would that be? You know, my own, my own personal thing is, is pretty simple. I mean, I plant what makes me happy. You know, I, I, it's not so much a mission statement as a daily goal. Um, I'm a garden designer, yes. I'm a farmer, part-time, part-time wannabe, wannabe real farmer um, and all of that. I think my mission statement is really I, I, I want to make myself happy in the garden. When you say I plant what makes me happy, give us a little description of uh, what that actually looks like in the ground and around your home there in the beautiful, beautiful community of Ojai. That is beautiful. Well, look, I, I plant. I want something going on all the time. So, in other words, I don't want a garden. I don't want a garden uh, with much stasis in it. I want a seasonal garden. I want to see something blooming at all times. I want something that something that's happening. And I think that's always been my goal, whether for my personal use and and gardens around me or for my clients, is to have a to have a garden that changes. I just think that's so wonderful, and it's one of the things. That's uh, one of the things that's a challenge in California gardening, right? Yep. Without a deep winter, without a without without snow, uh, and though we see it on the hills, and I'm, we're so grateful for that here um, at points during the winter time, I want a garden that moves and 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 is different from one day to the next or one season to the next, and that's what makes me happy. I, I don't really, I don't in my personal gardens. Sure, I have a design garden, but it's not the kind of garden I spend the sort of time I do for my clients. Mm. It's really interesting. I, I surround myself with things that make me happy. And inevitably, inevitably that's a good garden design. I'm, I, you know, that's, that's the kind of thing that, that is satisfying and, and works for me. Yeah. 
Yeah. So take us back a little bit. Take us back to, you know, the people and places and plants that grew you into a man and a garden designer for whom this would be important work and plants surrounding you and making you happy would actually be a value in your life, Scott. Well, you know, plants and and the, and the industry, agriculture, whatever you want to call it, the nursery industry, design, all of this was very late in coming for me, or or the change, I should say, was very late. Um, I grew up with folks who, I grew up in South Louisiana, with people who very much valued the soil and the earth, particularly one of my grandmothers, who could grow anything. The woman could grow anything. She had, my mom used to joke she could plant a rock and it would bloom. <laughs> um, and she had the, the windowsill full of, you know, small cans and small little, little anything. She planted seeds all the time and the garden was the center of their life. And, and it fed them. And I mean, it was, it was a practical part of their life. And I got that early on. And so I was, I was well into soil and, and, and planting and all that and mimicked my grandpa's garden, you know, grandma and grandpa's garden um, as a young child. I think, you know, as, as uh, growing up distractions sort of hit and you do other things, I was always conscious of it. I even now think of garden design notes that I was taking as a kid. Hmm. Um, and then I think as an adult, um, I, I became a, a true gardener after a winter in Chicago. Huh? You know, when, when I, was, I was working on the road at the time, so, so very not connected to much, right? And then, and then a winter had, that I'd never been through anything like. Um, and I just, I dove into the soil like nobody's business. And that was as a young adult. And, and my, my, early, my, early, um, my early career or my early professional career is very vague, very multidimensional, very no direction whatsoever. And eventually I got to a place where there was only one thing that I really wanted to be doing all the time. And that was growing things, making things grow, having growing things around me. And that's what changed my life and, and career direction and ultimately led me to garden design and to tomato mania. So first of all, um, because I love this kind of storyline, how do you get from Louisiana to Chicago? And then how do you get from <laughs> Chicago to Ojai? Give us, give us well, that little two, path. Was, yeah, yeah, exactly. There was Tucson in the mix as well, right? So I went from, Ooh. yeah, I was, I was in Louisiana. I worked in association management out of Chicago, as many associations, you know, a central headquarters kind of thing. And I worked for my fraternity for two years, traveling to college campuses. Oh, wow. Okay. And then, and then, so that was the, that was the Chicago experience. And then, uh, then I worked on the road for another year uh, for Up With People, if you're familiar with that. I worked in advance of, of a cast of, of international students from all over the world traveling around with a musical show. And that was out of Tucson. <laughs> so, so Chicago was required in order to do one job. Tucson was the next. And the truth of it is, as I sort of grew into uh, both my, myself and, and finished what was to be done in, in that particular position in Tucson, um, I just said, look, I, I always figured I'd be in Southern California. Um, it's eight hours away. You know, I could be there in, in less than half a day. And sort of it happened suddenly. And I visited a friend out here and the, the rest is history. I got to Southern California, had been there only once and oddly had been on my first trip to California early on had visited Ojai. And so I ended up moving to Los Angeles on almost on a whim. And I didn't know a thing about Los Angeles, but I obviously quick, quickly learned it, but I knew Ojai. And so Ojai became a touchstone for me the minute I moved into Southern California, which was, uh, was mid eighties. And uh, I started this journey in, uh, in Los Angeles and ended up um, tossing a marketing career for 
uh, a job at the desk at the hottest nursery going. And that's kind of how it, that's kind of how it landed and how it happened. And uh, tomato mania was a, a sort of a keystone event at this nursery. Okay. And that's, I, I helped build it. I helped, you know, helped it just, we, we created this juggernaut and uh, a long story. I know, but the, the nursery closed and I took the, this element of the nursery and took it on the road. And that's sort of how it happened. Before we go further, I would love for you to describe Ojai a little bit, because I think for many listeners, they have a specific idea. When you say Los Angeles, they have some idea. So I'd like you to describe the climate and the, um, the, the kind of gardening vibe of that area, because it's specific and it's different than LA. Oh, it is. But it, it's a perfect kind of, you know, seedbed, as as it were, for this exact kind of enthusiastic endeavor around the celebration of plants, uh, any plants, but um, maybe specifically your signature plant. Well, Ojai, California was used as Shangri-La in what, The Lost Horizon, right? So the famous, famous movie of the past where this little valley became sort of synonymous with, with paradise and, and all of that. And in many ways it is. We are at 1,500 feet. We are 72 miles north, sort of northwest of Los Angeles, on parallel with Santa Barbara, actually, but inland. So we don't have a coastal influence. Um, we have a, we, we are, in, in terms of weather in that, we look at Los Angeles weather and we add 10 degrees in the summer and we subtract 10 degrees in the winter from the, for, from the, mm-hmm. from the LA forecast mm-hmm. and, or the LA, LA sort of temperatures as it may be. I have a 6,800 foot peak down the valley and above us. And then we have this dip. We live at a, at a midpoint. The valley dips down to about 750 feet in town. That is 750 feet um, elevation. And, uh, and so we have very, very hot summers. Very hot. Um, How you know, hot? When you say that, it's just because I don't think oh, some people really get what that oh, means. Oh, it's hot. It's hot. Not last summer, but summer before. We had three days at 117. And that was just unheard of. That's just absolutely unheard of. Now, we're routinely at, you know, 95 to 100 in the summers. And then we do freeze in the, you know, in the winters. Again, I've got hills above me that have snow periodically mm-hmm. periodically when we, uh, you know, have systems move through. So um, it varies greatly. Um, I live on a property where the house where we live is six to eight degrees warmer than where my tomato mania test garden is. It's remarkable. And uh, with California and in so many places, you have where you have hills and you have valleys and such, uh, the microclimates are intense. And so we must deal with that. Again, I can't, I can't plant agaves down where my tomatoes are, but they do quite fine up here on the hill with just that little temperature, temperature variation. Right. So um, in the upper valley, valley where I am, the crops up here um, are not, all, not necessarily citrus and avocados. They are persimmons and they are stone fruits and they are walnuts and like that that's the history of this valley yeah so we're you know we're cold we're colder and and much different than six miles down the hill in town where citrus is uh, uh citrus is the rule yeah yeah and um very dry and the the native landscape is fairly summer dormant i'm i'm guessing um it is absolutely yeah. and for this kid from louisiana that's a big shift mm-hmm. yeah. you know that is a big shift from bayous and rivers and lots and lots of you know summer rain yeah dry is the rule and we um we we bless the rain so much it's you know as a gardener it's it's an interesting it's an interesting dichotomy we have no rain but we have ultimate control you know over what our plants get in a given season mm-hmm. uh, 
given that. So it's a, it is a trade off. It's like you know the tomatoes only get the water that that I give them. Thus, I don't have to worry about a rainy season in the summer, right? Right. It's an interesting it's an interesting thing, and uh, and we love the challenges. And because of the milder weather, that that goal that I mentioned up top, we always have something blue. Mm-hmm. There's always something going on, or a host of things. So, I think we've set the scene. You move to LA, you start working at a nursery, you develop this thing called tomato mania. Now I'm just going to, I'm going to acknowledge the fact that we are the cliche of you say tomato <laughs> and I say tomato. And the, the fact that I say tomato is of endless like chagrin to me, but I'm in like a rock and a hard place because I was raised by two families, you know, my mother's family and my father's family, both of uh, English descent. Uh, my grandfather on my maternal side came to the U.S. from England during World War II. And so if I say tomato, I get endless crap from my family. <laughs> if I say tomato, I sound like pretentious and priggish to the audience. So I just wince every time I have to say it. So the fact that I'm even doing a whole program in which I have to say it over and over again <laughs> makes me laugh even. But, well, it's great. Come on. At least it's interesting. Look, it is. It's interesting, it is. right? Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. And I don't say potato, so you can stop making fun of me there. Right, and I, exactly. I don't say basel. This is the only, um, the only outlier. So tell us a little bit about your history with this plant. When did you first fall in love with it, first start growing it, and wh- what was the genesis behind you starting an event at the nursery you were with in LA all around the celebration of this whole beautiful plant. It is is a wonderful thing, a wondrous thing we grow in the summers. And this this started no doubt for me when I was, again, when I was a kid, my grandfather's knee, like so many, right? I was taught his reverence for this plant. My grandfather, you know, he, he probably, he gardened within, within half a mile of the Mississippi river right out of just across the river from Baton Rouge. And he grew 25 better boys in the same rows every year for <laughs> umpteen years, right? And he did it the same way. And it always was amazing. And that's, I, I spent some time with them before my, my dad was in the service. And before my, my family joined him, we spent time at this particular grandparents, uh, my, my grandparents' home. And so it happened to be summer. And boy, did I get a lesson. I got his, I got his reverence for this. And of course, I, lo- I just loved him. I, as a kid, you know. I'd love to eat them, et cetera. I did have gardens growing up, all of that. That, you know, the tomato appears in my life at the various stations when I did have so, you know, soil available in the springtime, mm-hmm. I would do it. It was just a, it was a practice. When I made the shift, um, again, made this big career shift, and I did land at this this nursery. It's sort of legendary now. It was, it, it was called Hortus, mm-hmm. and it was a, quite the Pasadena thing. A wonderful nurseryman named Gary Jones who hired me and became my friend and garden mentor actually created tomato mania early in the 90s. And I hit just in its probably second or third year when people were starting to perk their ears up and go, wait, you have heirloom plants for sale? You know, I can get seed, but really you have plants. And it was black crim, the Russian black tomato. And it was, you know, these these first exotic wonders that just made people amazing. And And I love saying that, you know, I landed at the nursery and went, okay, this event has to be huge. And in our first in our first year, I think we had 25 varieties. And I left the nursery probably three years, maybe four years later. And it had become a four-day extravaganza. And we had over 250 varieties of heirlooms on the shelf for people to for people to buy. 
and gardeners lost their brains. Mm. They just, they just, they couldn't get enough of this event. So it became a cornerstone at the nursery. And I, you know, again, I'm proud to say I helped build it. And um, along with a, a team of amazing people who, frankly, a lot of them still work with me. My, my garden buddies from Hortus still work with me on the, on the event. I still see alumna, I call them, of the Hortus years. Um, they show up with their T-shirts from that era. They show up with, you know, <laughs> all this enthusiasm that, that we began to foster in the 90s. And when the nursery closed and then didn't reopen as planned, um, I took, uh, took an available stock of tomatoes that was set for a reopening and found a place to host this sale in Los Angeles. And we just celebrated 20 years at that site. Yeah. And it was one, and then it was two events, and then it was three events, and then it was four. Um, I worked with Gary and friends for a while early on on this and then uh, uh, bought the business in, in the 2005 or something. Yeah. And uh, we've been in, we have, we have hosted this event or, or run this event in uh, five states, 25 cities, trying, you know, what works, how do we do it better? How do we do it differently? How do we all that become mostly a Southern California thing now, though we, though we trace into uh, Northern California toward the end of most seasons. Unfortunately, not this one, but um, that's where it is. It's, it's just, um, it's this tradition that lives on from a, from a wonderful space that so many people value. Uh, that some it's, it's become sort of mythical now the Hortus right. the Hortus myth. So you are using a couple of uh, I want to have you unpack a couple of terms you have used. The the first one is um, you know when it got started in the 1990s you had these heirloom plants. Now this is one of the questions that people uh, always ask and and some people know the answer but especially for the new gardeners that came online last year and hopefully found enough success to hold on for this next year. What do you we, mean? We hope there'll be a lot of those. Right? Yeah. And we hope that even more <laughs> exactly. will we, continue. We, and we, we love this idea. Yeah, exactly. And so describe what you mean when you say heirloom plants. An heirloom plant is true from seed. It is, it is a seed you can save in this harvest season, mm-hmm. plant next year, and you can count on the fact that you will get the same tomato. So it is truly, truly an heirloom. It can be passed down. If I have a favorite tomato, I can save it for as long as that seed is, I could save the seed for as long as that seed is viable. And I can pass it along to a friend on the other side of the world or across the street or in a garden club or whatever. And they can get that same tomato that I enjoyed. That is the root of the, of the definition. Now, yes, there are um, family heirlooms and divisions within this whole idea that some people uh, latch onto, and I think that's fine. Uh, commercial heirlooms, you, you you name it. There are there are people have gotten more specific with it, but that is the that is the truth. Okay. And the stories that we have associated with heirloom tomatoes are really fantastic about you know seeds that were tucked in ham, and when people went from one country to another or across an ocean or whatever, they brought this heirloom with them. And that's that's what we love about these wonderful varieties and all that. A hybrid is not that. So that's that's the difference. And a hybrid is when you cross two plants and therefore the genetics uh, often lead to what people call hybrid vigor, but they also lead to this variability so that when you have the seed from them, you can get a whole variety of expression of this genetic uh, material in that's incorporated in a hybrid. Yes, exactly. Okay. You have, it, an heirloom is a short shot. And no, there wasn't a purposeful cross, perhaps, at the at, you know, way back in its history. Right. But people kept selecting for that large yellow 
tomato or the early small red tomato or the speck of this. It just, that's what happened. And natural selection or farmer gardener selection uh, created this, this seed stability that we now value today. This is Cultivating Place. Scott Daig is the owner of Power Plant Garden Design in Ojai, California. He's a dedicated home gardener and a self-proclaimed tomato maniac. Stay with us. We'll be right back for more with Scott on how to prepare and set the stage for success with your tomatoes this summer, from soil to water to food. Hey, it's Jennifer. Last week, I shared with you an offer to get your own signed copy of my new book, Under Western Skies, when you become a monthly sustainer of the Cultivating Place podcast for $10 or more by following the support button at the top right-hand corner of any page at cultivatingplace.com between now and May 31st of 2021. This week, I want to let Northern California listeners know about a few in-person book launch celebrations, at which I'd love to welcome you and sign a book for you in person. The first of these events is on Saturday, May 1st, in conjunction with a great plant sale at Canyon Creek Nursery and Design, about a half an hour southeast of Chico, California. The event will take place from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. in the fresh air and in the sunshine under oak trees. While the event is free and you are in no way obligated to purchase a book, just come celebrate with us. You will need to email me with an RSVP so I can send you directions. Email cultivatingplace at gmail.com and put May 1st event in the subject line. I will get you on the list and send you directions by reply email. That's Saturday, May 1st, 10 a.m. to 3 p.m., about a half an hour southeast of Chico, California. You're invited to come celebrate the publication of Under Western Skies with me and collaborator photographer Caitlin Atkinson. Email me your RSVP, cultivatingplace at gmail.com, and I will send you instructions. For other in-person book signing events, please see the events page at cultivatingplace.com. We're back now to our conversation on all things tomato with tomato maniac Scott Daig of Ojai, California, as we prepare and look forward to the warm season crops that will fill our summer gardens and our bellies. You then keep talking about this event, this Tomato Mania event. What is this event, Scott? Tomato Mania. <laughs> tomato Mania. <laughs> tomato Mania is, is a meeting of gardeners and tomato lovers on sites, sites all over the place, as I've already said. Now we, we, we started as a pop-up. We, we are, we're a tomato circus that arrives in town <laughs> at a wonderful site. I love we it. We set up uh, an event and we sell all these wonderful heirloom. Uh, varieties. Now, you know, I each year I will source varieties, find new things, talk to hybridizers, find the latest, the greatest, and all the classics that everybody want. Wants we source, uh, I source that seed, I plant, and uh, you know, contract to have that seed grown, and then I uh, transfer and get those things brought to an event near you. And so we we set up, we promote those. Obviously, um, we provide information on each or as much as we can in a, re- you know, in a reasonable space and ed- try to educate people about what these wonderful varieties are. 
Um, we will have as many as 300 varieties at a given event. Okay. Well, yeah. all, my, all my events are different, some small and lovely, some large and lovely. Um, that's what we do. That's what Tomato Mania does. Our goal really, you asked about mission statement and, and I, I said, well, it, my personal garden mission statement is obviously different than my Tomato Mania one because for Tomato Mania, we, we, yes, we sell seedlings. That's what we do. We sell amazing varieties of, of tomato seedlings, but our goal really is to make people successful and to, and to talk about that, to, to go back to that point you brought up earlier, to make that person who started gardening last year and fell in love with growing tomatoes, to make them even better at it and to make them even more excited and to show them the hundreds of other ones that they can grow. And that's what we do every year. And yes, that group of my garden uh, glitterati, my garden, my garden stalwarts, all these garden people that I know and love, join me in this effort talk to people and actually, you know, commune around tomatoes at this event, which you can't really find at most nurseries, right? No. So or, we offer yeah. something different. We offer, we offer something different, hopefully something extraordinary. That's really our goal. But what we're really trying to do is make people successful. And so you are sourcing the seed and sourcing someone to grow the seed. You described that you have a trial garden there at home to help you yes. uh, evaluate which ones you might bring online. How do you do all of these things? Like, where do you go to source seed? And then how do you, where do you get your growers to grow these seedlings uh, so that they're, they're ready? Well, you know, there's a big wide world out there, right? And we can all get to it. And that's kind of that's kind of what's happened, uh, like like so many industries. You know, the world is at our beck and call, and I get seed from anywhere. I, I, I'm just on I'm on various forums. I'm looking to see what comments people talk about on this and that spaces in social media to see what's thrilling people out there. That's really what we want. And so I find it. I do procure procure the seed. I have lovely loyal growers here, large, small, organic, inorganic, all all of these things, um, who sort of. Uh, support us in this effort. We couldn't do it without them, of course. Um, who who deal with my um, my <laughs> my enthusiasm and utter or utter disorganization uh, um, to to try to you know to try to get these in shape. Now, yes, they have we have different um, qualifications in terms of terms of timing. All these growers, these growers are different. Some have heat, some don't. Some are in cooler areas, some are not. They are all over Southern California. I will work with up to five in a given season so that I don't put all, literally put all my eggs in one basket. Um, and, um, and so we, we, we just arrange logistics with them based on, I want a four inch or a one gallon, or I want um, what, even what size, to, what size I want for a particular event, which can be useful and helpful. So I, I let the pros do it. That's the bottom line, is I let the pros do it. I have three test gardens, one in Santa Inez, one in Camarillo, for those of you that within within for those of you who are not Southern California, within um, you know two hours kind of thing at, at the farthest, and, and not even that, that I can check with and um, sort of I find I find the most unique stuff that we don't know about, and that's what we grow in our test gardens, so that we can do the we can do the work, and then we compare notes with other you know the thousands of tomato maniacs who have done the same thing because that's right. uh, largely what they come to our, our events to do to find something else, right, something different. And so um, that's how we do it. So we, we do our homework in the summertime. We source the seed from all ports and uh, in, in, you know, in the fall. And then that, is, that comes to fruition through these wonderful pros in springtime. And, uh, and, and while it's very not, you know, I, I'm looking at, my, my head is full of lists this time of the year. And no list, it, we're growing. No list ever comes out exactly the way I want it because they're plants, they're living. Um, it's not a widget, it's not sitting on a shelf. 
and then, you know, and then sort of, you know, carted to me at a given location. So um, we, we deal with, uh, we deal with weather, we deal with uh, uh, everything from mice to windstorms um, in, <laughs> in terms of, oh my gosh, the seedlings, right? And, uh, and it's, it's a fascinating and, and often difficult journey. It's not, you know, it's, uh, especially this year, it's not for the faint of heart. You no, know, I got, no. I got good folks out there who, again, who are joining with me in the fray. And, and it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful, rewarding experience. So you are not hybridizing yourself or you are not growing in order to collect and then sell seed. I am not. Okay. And so you do not sell seed. We do not at this point sell seeds. That's, that's the science. You know, I'm, I'm, any, I'm a lot of things, but I'm not a scientist. And I wasn't even trained in horticulture. You know, my, my, my garden design whole career started because it's all I wanted to do. It's all about enthusiasm, not about education. That eventually you learn, right? I learn, I always say I learned by killing things. And so, so yes, I let those, I let those folks do it. And the hybridizing, oh my gosh, as much as I would love to do it, I think it would make my brain explode. The, 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 the detail and the, you know, all of this that they have to do, it's amazing. And that is not the right kind of work for me. I, I know this, I know this. And so it's not something I do, but boy, do I love what they produce. Yeah. And so you, you source seed, uh, you get it, you get it to the growers. You say they are some organic, some non-organic is, you know, are tomatoes one of those things that you feel strongly should be uh, of organic seed origin or of organically grown as a plant? Is it one of those that... Uh, you know, is is on that high list of pay attention to what chemicals go into this so that they don't then go into our bodies? Well, inevitably, if you're somebody who wants to be organic, yes, you absolutely have to do that. I mean, a tomato is, you know, what it takes in, it's putting into the fruit, it's putting into the result at the end of the season, right? There's no question about that. Um, I, as a, as a, as a gardener, grower, and person, I don't, uh, I don't have an exclusively organic rule um, and though I like to, right. Um, I'm, a, I'm a, uh, I, I, I love it when people do, and I salute that in tomato world. Um, it is very difficult to be organic in a greenhouse in January, um, in Southern California and maybe everywhere. Um, I have, we have been burned too many times by attempts at being, and we, we, we really have tried. We have, we have absolutely tried to go organic, right. And um, unfortunately, it is, a, it is a very difficult task. It's a steep hill to climb. And I salute those who do. Um, I often cannot work with organic growers because they can't keep up with us. They are literally, they're mostly too small and they, they can't meet the demand. And um, so as much as I would love to, I am not exclusively organic. I do, however, think that if a plant has been in greenhouse for six weeks and had a fungicide applied, because that's generally what happens in a, a greenhouse in you know January, um, I think by the time it sets fruit, four and a half months later, three and a half, whatever that is, I think you can be you can be confidently assured that if you are gardening organically, I think you have a pure product. That's my own, you know, that's my own thought uh, or my own opinion. Um, and we talk about that all the time. We have good organic folks who come in and go, you know, I understand, I get it, and I'm going to grow organically in organic soil, yada yada yada, and um, and there you are. So would love it if we could do the, the, the 100%. Just don't see it happening. Okay. So on to other caretaking issues. Once I come to Tomato Mania and I am so excited and I buy my, you know, five plants, I probably buy 10 because I'm that enthusiastic, but I really only needed five, right? <laughs> you absolutely do. I take them home. 
what are some of the, and I know all conditions are going to be, you know, it's all based on where I live and, and what my own rainfall is, but if you had to give five really basic tips on, on how to care for your plant in terms of frequency of water, in terms of caging and or pinching back, and mm-hmm. um, in terms of feeding, what would those be? Those five things. Well, you know, there's not many. The, the first thing in everyone um, in growing tomatoes is there's not that many more than five things that you have to do correctly. You know, there's the good, there's the good news because the basics are the basics. And so, yes, if you take care of, you know, we often get lucky and get lazy and we still have tomatoes. However, um, you take care of these five basics and I think you can, you can count on an amazing season. Number one, you got to invest in the soil. You know, it, start, it, it begins and it ends with the quality of your soil. And this is particularly um, important for container growers who, oh, do I have to take all that soil out of that pot this year? And, you know, and no, <laughs> I don't want to say, I don't want to say start over and do the hard work and invest again and all that. But you know what? We do. And we say start over. And we say put a, put a premium potting soil in that, in that container. Two thirds of it should be filled with that. A premium product, not something cheap. And then, and then I want you to amend that just how you, just like you amend the ground and put one third good compost, worm castings, rich stuff that adds to that experience and makes the container more like the ground. Invest in your soil and in the, in the, in the soil convert, you know, converse to growing in containers, uh, invest all the time, put a layer of leaves, add a layer of hay, add a layer of compost, add a layer of planting mix, add a layer of the all year long. You should be adding to that soil where, you know, tomatoes will grow or go. Um, because they use a lot. They're greedy little weeds. Yeah. They really are. Well, they produce a lot. So they have to, they they need, yeah. They have a lot of work. We want them to do a lot of work. You know, we implore them to do a lot of work. Thus, we have to set up the base. Um, you know, somebody found a um, this little weed on a hillside in South America, right, centuries ago. And look what it became. But it's a very different animal than then. And we want this gorgeous, big, huge, late season fruit if that's what we're after. And boy, that takes a good base. So start with the soil. Keep it healthy. Keep it active. That's the, that's the, the key. Once it's planted, um, nutrition comes in the form of water and fertilizer. The two things we messed up. We mess up in most, water, in most tomato gardens. Yeah. Um, Southern California, I mentioned previously, we control all the water that goes on our plants. We have no rain. We water deeply and we water infrequently to make a season happen. Okay, wait, I'm talking about. I want you to, I'm talking about in the ground. Right. I want you to say it again, and I want you to say it really slowly. Got it. When you water a tomato or you plan for a tomato season, plan to water deeply and infrequently if you're if you're planting in the ground. We all know a container is a different universe. I like, right. that's that's going to have to be. What's the size of your pot? How much sun is it in? What'd you put in that pot? All of that right. has to come into play. Uh, every plant is different in a, in a container than in the ground. But in the ground, water deeply and infrequently. You, I like to say, you soak the root ball mm-hmm. as the season goes along. Mm-hmm. In week one, you don't have much of a root ball to water, right? Yeah. You put a couple cups of water. The root ball is soaked, and water goes, you know, seeps beneath. Hopefully, the root zone. That's where the roots go. You want that. You set up a well. We talk about a well in California. You set up a well or a, you know, a spring of water underneath that plant, if you will, deep water each time you do that. As the season goes along, you have more roots. You have a bigger root ball. So you have to water more. Not necessarily more frequently. You have to water more when you water. So whether you're on a system or your hand and the, and the, and the hose is the system, um, Start by watering again. If I can, it's 75 degrees. If I put a plant in the ground today, um, I don't have to water it for three or four days if I, if I soak the root ball. 
I don't. See if you can water every three days, move it to four if you can. Um, the, the tendency for us is to watch the plant and, 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 and many people can do that quite easily in the front part of the season. The plant's green, it's growing. As long as it's green and growing, we're fine and we, we can stay on that system, right? Or that, that, that method. For the end of the season, the plant's not looking so good. It does. It, it, it sort of declines a bit because why? It's not worried about leaves and being green and fat anymore. It's worried about developing fruit. It's constant. The focus of the plant is shifted. So when that happens and the plant looks like it's going downhill and we see fruit happening, the, the impetus or the, our inclination is to grab the hose and water more and get it back like we used to do, you know, like it used to look. Not going to happen. This is an arc. The plant is on an arc. Water deeply and infrequently, keep that going. And that's how you get the best tasting fruit at the end of the summer. Because yeah. if you're pounding water on that, these are, and, and you probably have, or you have, forgive me, other people in, in rainy places, you know, if you get rainstorms all during the, you know, the last month of your tomato season, you're going to get watery tomatoes, right? That's because the plant's putting most of that water or a lot, a lot of water into the fruit. Right. So I can control it. If I put less water, guess what happens? I get a more flavorful fruit, and that's what I'm, that's inevitably what we're after. So we water intelligently as the season goes along. And you you mentioned that it is watering and our watering regimes that I have to like are the source of so many of our problems. Absolutely. Um, and, and the most common problems. Can you just mention a few of those so that people, if they start to see them, will think not that something's wrong with the plant, but that actually something is wrong with the way you are watering? Well, it, it can be that the plant wants consistency, like any of us. <laughs> That's right. what we want. What can I expect? I don't want to be surprised. And in the ground, it's much more easy to do that especially if you're deep watering, the plant can always find water. In a pot, completely the opposite, which you have this, this, this thing that changes quite, you know, quite rapidly. So in terms, of, um, in terms of watering, what happens when the plant gets inconsistent care? When, and this, this could happen, look, plants in the ground, all of a sudden it's really cold overnight and then windy the next day. There's an inconsistency, right? What, often, what the plant can often do is say, ooh, those flowers I got over here on this side of, the, of me, ah, I'm not ready yet. This is not, this is not what I want, right? So the flowers shrivel up and they die and they fall off, right? Far too few of us follow the flowers on our tomato plant. It's very important to do so because it can be a barometer of what's happening with the rest of your plant or mm. your season, right? Mm. So when there's inconsistency, when you let that plant go, to, you're, you're rescuing the plant constantly in a pot, right? Ooh, 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 it needs water because it's droopy. Ooh, it needs water because it's droopy. There's no consistency there. The plant's not thinking about fruit. It's thinking about getting through tomorrow, right? If a plant could think. But what, but what I mean is the, the plant's focus is not on producing fruit. It's on survival. survival right, right, right. Yep. So, so the inconsistency in watering, whether it's, whether it's too much or too little, right, can cause the plant to just go, oh, I'm not ready to fruit now. And that's a huge issue, obviously. No flower, no fruit. And um, flowers fail and... Ultimately, a season can fail if you're if you're being too inconsistent or, or like that. Yeah. So, okay. Uh, are you watering? One more question on the water before we move of on. Uh, overhead or uh, at the ground level? Southern California. I am not afraid of watering overhead, but I don't do it every day. There we are. Water in the morning. Uh, for us, we get generally a nice little breeze. Um, that's one of the, you know, we are, we are not coastal, but we're close enough that we get nice breezes down this valley. If I water in the morning, I have no worry at all that the plant's going to dry off completely quickly, and I don't, and I'm not fostering further, you know, any any kind of negative fungal growth or other undesirables. 
our plants get dusty. It's dry. I live on a, you know, we live on a, a ranch. So uh, it's, 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 it's dirty. I love washing my plants off and I think so do they, they become more effective. If you're in a place where it rains a lot, you got to think about that and you got to put water in, you know, on the ground or use a, use a system that deposits it underneath in a Oya or some sort of uh, contraption like so many people do to deposit uh, water deep and even out of a weed, weed seeds way, right? Right. So, so um, definitely, I mean, in, in most of my situations or for most of the summer, I am watering with soaker hoses. I love a good soaker hose. Mm-hmm. I think that's a, a really, really effective way to, to water. And I, it's all by hand. Nothing's on a system. So I say, mm, that row needs some work today or whatever. That needs, that needs today because it's, a, 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 it's higher on the hill, for example, right? Right. Um, and, um, and so I will regulate all of that. And, um, and so you have to just, uh, again, the water, the water application is key and you, you just have to know your site. And, uh, yeah, no, I, I think a lot of people should, you know, should back away from any water on anything having to do with leaves. Southern California, clean them off. And, and yes, let's, let's keep it on the ground as much as you can. This is Cultivating Place. Scott Daig is the owner of Power Plant Garden Design in Ojai, California. A dedicated home gardener, he is a self-proclaimed tomato maniac. Stay with us. We'll be right back for more from Scott on some additional pruning and staking tips and specific varieties worth trying this year. So thinking out loud this week. For many people in my experience, the word garden actually connotes the summer vegetable garden. I can see that. I can see the many, many sweet, slow, warm summer days and images of those very gardens. Can't you? The sunlight shimmering golden on the fragrant leaves of the tomatoes and the other aromatics peppers, the basil, the prickly leaves of cucumbers or eggplants. There's the far-off sound of morning doves calling, the lazy, sonorous buzz of a fly or a bee fly, the rambling vibration of a bumblebee or the more energetic and electric buzz of hummingbirds, and then the high whine of the mosquitoes and dirt on your knees and under your nails, the warm smell of the earth herself, whether you're in the city or in the country, exhaling into you, the earth and these summer garden days. We were talking about the definition of rich a few weeks back, and this, my garden-hearted sister and brotherhood, this is the very richest and most potent element of life held lovingly right here in these kinds of knowings, these garden fragrances and seasons. Breathe back into the plants and the earth wherever you are. Breathe deeply back to them. It is officially Earth Week this week, and I know intuitively that those of you listening right now are with me on your every effort being made to honor this earth every single day.
We're back now to our conversation on all things tomato with tomato maniac Scott Dagg of Ojai, California, as we prepare and look forward to the warm season crops that will fill our summer gardens and our bellies. So I get my plant. I have great soil. I have amended it and fed it and it's ready for my seedling. I put my seedling in. I set up my water system uh, so that it is ready in place and manual so that I am actually paying attention, not just on default uh, water. I do love that. I, I really, really have to yeah. thumbs up to that. Yeah. You know, be a gardener, be a farmer. You are one. So you, so you need to act like it, right? And then... I want to cage them and maybe pinch them back. Talk to me about these two elements. Okay, um, and we didn't do we didn't do fertilizer. So oh, if I oh, may, yes, yes, really yes, quick, please, yes. Because water is water is only one part of that right. equation, right? Yes, you need to feed. It can It's not a complicated thing. Um, uh, a balanced organic fertilizer is what I choose to use. There are many ways to feed a tomato or any plant. Uh, one of my one of my uh, one of my key garden mentors and, and, uh, and, and friends says, look, food is food. Plants will use what you give them. Um, and, and yes, we're lucky to have a tomato vegetable mix from lovely you know, fertilizer companies. I think you can, you can feed whatever you like um, if it's balanced. Too much chicken manure is too much nitrogen. Too much, you know, the, the three numbers on a, on a fertilizer bag will tell you if there's balance in there. Use something balanced. The numbers are ba- more balanced than, than disparate. And the, the key is use it. Don't put it in the shed and find it in October, right? Whether you're in the ground where you, where you really don't have to, you shouldn't have to, if you've amended really well, you shouldn't have to fertilize a ton in the ground. Be consistent. Every, the, most bags will tell you every six to eight weeks, that's fine. Our soils are kind of lean. I say every four to five. Yeah, yeah. And you just top dress, you top dress, you water and dig it in a little. Yeah, okay. I love to mix it up. I think foliar feeding is amazing. Mm, you know, okay. yep. tomatoes are extremely effective at taking nutrients through the leaves. And hey, I'm washing them off at the same time. So per my you know previous comments, I love foliar feeding. Mix it up, give them something different. But be, again, be consistent. The plant needs something a little bit all the time. It never needs a lot. If you, if you give it a lot, it's going to use it. And then it's going to, it, chances are it's a big green happy uh-huh. plant and you don't have a lot of fruit happening. <laughs> right. right. I get that. I get that email every summer. <laughs> you know, my plant's 10 feet tall. Where are the tomatoes? And you got to go back to the basics. So be smart about it. Feed intelligently. Feed consistent. The plant just wants consistency. That's all, you know, that's all it wants. So that was my back step right there. Okay. Um, and you went in and you went on to ask about, you know, what do I, what do I do now? Do I pinch and how do I, how do I, how do I keep this thing in control? Well, you point up those two things that are the way that we control our plants. We provide something for them to grow on and they don't vine, by the way, we attach them to something that they grow on. Right. And number two, the, the, the inevitable to pinch or not to pinch question. And, uh, and everybody asks that question. Let me, let me get the first one, the, the staking, the plants grow fast. You'll put this in the ground, that little plant that you bought, yes, mostly, most of the tomatoes we, you're going to buy are going to be four to five feet tall, and some of them might be 10, so you better get ready. And I don't care what you use, I always say, all it has to be is strong. It can be pretty, it can be color, you know, a colored thing, it can be a fancy tutor, it can be a, you know, a pole you're rescued from, whatever. Jennifer, the, the, the most fun story that I love to relate is I have a friend who, whose kids, you know, grew up and eventually went to college and all the rest, moved out. And the, they never got rid of the swing set. And guess what became a tomato can <laughs> or a tomato support. Right? I love it. I love it. Yeah. it. Well, can you stand that? I mean, yeah. come on. That's, perfect. that's just, 
Yeah, and, and of course, my when relating the story, I said, please send me pictures, and there are none, you know? It's like, really, you didn't take pictures of that? <laughs> um, but you know what? If it's strong, it will hold up a tomato, whether it's a, a column on your arbor or the fence or whatever. So A, hold it up. Tie it off with something that's uh, soft. My grandmother used to use old stockings. Yep, right? mine did too. Old, yep. <laughs> old, old T-shirts, whatever. Something soft that won't tear the stems. And if I have, if I have the option, and I will recommend this to every, every home gardener out there. If you have the option, attach it to something that spreads the plant out. Now, that goes in direct contrast to what most of us will do in the summer season. Because a tomato cage is easy. You plop that over the top, and guess what? It holds it up. Yeah, you're going to have to guide some errant you know, limbs or branching back mm-hmm. into the confines of that cage. But what you're also doing is you're smashing all these leaves and branches together. So in the case of an overly aggressive, huge grower, right, yep. you, have, you have a thicket quite quickly. So if you have the option and if you have the wherewithal, right, look at your garden again, figure out where you might grow tomatoes against a space that onto, onto which you might spread it out. Think espalier, good gardeners. You know what espalier is. It's a centuries old technique where you attach something and it grows on a plane. I'm a huge proponent of growing on a grid like a corral grid or hog mm-hmm. wire or those kind of heavy grids you can get at a feed store and ag supply. Okay. They're amazing. You don't even have to tie them. You can just wind them through. And for a lazy gardener like me, I'm enthusiastic, but I'm lazy and I plant a lot of tomatoes. So a quick version or a quick way to do that is high on my list. So growing on a grid is amazing. And you spread them out if you in this preferred method. Thus, more leaves are getting more of the sun they need. The plant's operating at maximum potential. You get more, you get more circulation right? Boom. That's something else you need. This is a wonderful way to grow tomatoes. And um, they don't get sunburned. Well, here's the thing. Now that gets to that second question we're going to get to, right? Tomatoes have lots of leaves and look, you don't have to, you don't have to spread them out so that everybody's got its own, you know, its own uh, aisle on this thing that right. you're growing. Okay. Them, right? okay. Yeah. You don't have to, you don't have to separate them to, to, to whatever degree, you know, that some tomatoes, or if you don't, some tomatoes will have different characters. Some will have a lot of big leaves. Some will be more wispy. And yeah, you may have to worry about that. So you, you assign those a, a, a pattern on the thing that's closer together, right? Okay. Yeah. And that way, you can, that way you can protect them. It's a good question. And it's something that you will find toward the end of the season. Um, I, I went to um, Kendall Jackson Winery up in, the, up in uh, Santa Rosa area years ago. And for an event, that when they started emphasizing tomatoes for an event they had up there, um, they had taken grapes out of a, give, a field and they planted tomatoes on the wine supports. Oh, nice. And, and there they were, these long, you know, what supports wine, right? Long wires with occasional poles and, you know, all these. And they put tomatoes on this thing, and you have never seen more successful, fruitful, amazing tomatoes. I have never seen a, a more yeah. amazing tomatoes in my whole life. That's a nice it's, visual of it. I think people can really like, something? yeah, they can visualize what that looks like and, and understand you, what you're saying. You yeah. I can't even stand it. I just stood there, you know, with my jaw agape and went, well, that's how you do it. And... <laughs> And of course, we all don't have a vineyard or that kind of space. So look, we are we are going to get into that space where you know I can't have my plant. I don't have. I can't do this. Right. So you, you use a cage, and thus you have to think of this second question that you asked. Um, we control plants by putting them on a stake or a swing set or whatever it is in order to have them grow. Um, we can also prune them, pinch them, if we choose to, to make the plant less. Humongous. I mean, that's kind mm-hmm. of what that's about. Yeah. Um, first of all, you have indeterminate and determinate determinate plants in the in the tomato world. A determinate plant, I like to say, is a farmer's tomato. It's smaller, more compact, tends to produce more at once. Uh, some of the aromas. You need to collect lots of tomatoes to make a sauce, not one. 
And so that's that's the form that happens there. I, I would not recommend that on a smaller plant you do a lot of pruning or pinching. Okay. Right? I think it's smart. You don't have that much as much plant as on the others anyway. So on a determinate plant, be very judicious. If you have a, an extremely aggressive one, sure, why not? And if you're, go, if you're planting 300 tomatoes and you don't need every one to max out, pinch a little bit. You'll get, you'll get more sun on the interior of the plant. That makes the plant happy. You'll get more um, circulation. That makes the plant happy and less available for fungal diseases or bugs to hide out and all of that kind of stuff. So only if you're planting a lot do you even think about, or do I even think about uh, a trimming or, or pruning or pinching a determinate plant. The indeterminate plant is the one that will, the main stems will keep growing and it will uh, keep doing that all season. It will not fruit on that main stem, thus it keeps growing. And you have fruit in a more uh, constant or consistent manner or time frame, hopefully. And uh, that's the one that you might prune. Branching, branching, branching. A tomato branch uh, is often, and I think ineffectually or incorrectly called a sucker, right? We all know about these suckers on tomato plants, right? However, while the plant does suck energy from that finite, you know, energy of a plant, right? Because it's another branch. It's not the, a sucker the way a rose suckers or a a, fru a fruit tree suckers, right? Because you don't have a you don't have a graft involved in a fruit tree. You get something from growing from the rootstock. It's more aggressive. It's not the fruit or the rose you bought. You cut it off. You get rid of it. That is that is literally because rootstock is more aggressive. That's the point. It takes from the plant in a in a negative way. Um, yes, lots of branching um, do take energy from the plant, absolutely, but they will flower and they will fruit. Right. So if you let more branching grow, you'll get more tomatoes potentially because you'll have more flower. You also have more to hold up. You also will probably get tomatoes that are a bit smaller. And for me, I don't care. I just want lots of tomatoes. And so in, our, in my test fields, I'm not pruning, I'm not pinching a thing. Okay. I really don't. Who's got the time for that anyway? I mean, seriously, it's, it becomes a practical issue. If you're if you're looking at that plant when it's small, you can easily see what's happening. If you if you don't pay attention to that plant for a month or three weeks even, and you look all of a sudden, you won't know what's what down there. <laughs> it's they, true. These it's things so grow true. so fast. Right. Right. Um, they, they really do. And look, you can't do it. You can't do it incorrectly. What you will do is limit fruit potential. So if you have a plant that's going to now grow over your entire balcony and the door and you know everything else then pinch it a little bit. So again, you can pinch that with a, with a thumb and forefinger if they're small, and you can, you can opt for a more greenhouse method. In a greenhouse method, they pinch everything. They want only that center stem, and you have a leaf, leaf, leaf fruiting stem pattern that you can see going up very clearly, going up a long pole or vertical, vertical support or whatever it is. That's because they don't need any extra leaf cover. They want every available, all available light to get to those, you know, in, into this, this set of leaves to, to, to nourish the plant. Um, and that sort of gets to where you were going, um, you know, leaf cover, the, the question of leaf cover mm -hmm. um, is, is one that we have to marshal per hour gardens are, I, I, I'm in Ohio, I'm hot. I can't pinch too much because if I do, I lose the cover that I need in the summer for those babies. I need, I need some leaf cover for my tomatoes. Otherwise they will scald in hot summer sun. That's mm -hmm. just how it goes. If I'm coastal, I need heat into the center of the plant. I recommend that coastal growers pinch, you know, yeah. get some more heat in, get some more heat in there. You want that. All right. So it's early season now. Talk to us about what some of the, you know, maybe give us the, the three 
top favorite at your shows this year and the top three beyond that that you would like to see people experiment with if we have maybe, you know, some beefsteak, some slicers, some cherries, and maybe one good sauce, at least one good sauce. One good sauce. Well, that, how much time you got, right? You know, I could go, <laughs> I I could go could. a week on that. You've one. got seven minutes, Scott. Well, look, I think it's, you know, um, I mean, I change my mind, you know, every 15 yeah. minutes in the summer, what's my favorite in that. And, and that's because I, that's my goal, right? I want to find the next right. one and taste the next one and watch the next one. So I think really what's happening is um, you're seeing, you're seeing a couple trends that I think we could point to in terms of, in terms of what are make, what's making people happy out there. And the first is this idea of heirloom marriages, uh, with the, the, the term that's been coined and perhaps copyrighted, I don't know, yeah. um, by folks who are, who are breeding, who are, who are hybridizing, but they're hybridizing or they're crossing old heirloom tomatoes with new modern tomatoes. Yeah. And one of the things and one of the varieties we've been seeing happen is one we, we highlighted a few years ago, and it's called Madame Marmont. And it's the product of a major industrial seed company, which for me is kind of odd because I'm, you know, I'm out there finding the small guys who are doing the really interesting stuff. What's happening is industrial seed world out there has been listening and watching, and they know what people want now. And so we're getting exciting, new, heirloom-looking, good-tasting stuff, amazing stuff from some of these um, growers that just did red and mid-sized forever, you know? And so they're, they're, they're paying attention. Madame Marmande is the marriage of an old, timeless French heirloom, and I'm sorry, I don't know which one, because who's telling, um, with a modern American hybrid. Thus, you get old world taste, old world look, new world or new science, you know, productivity, disease resistance. You get a better mousetrap. And that's happening all over the place. Brandywine, which is the classic of all classic heirloom tomatoes, is being bred to everything. It's being crossed to everything because... In Southern California, for instance, Brandywine, I think, is very stingy. And I think people will have, you know, be nodding their heads out there going, yeah, it's really good, but I got three. Right, right, right. You yep. know, after a, after a whole season. East Coast, not so much. And, and some other locations, they love their Brandywines. And in some places, it's a market tomato, for goodness sakes. But it's being bred to modern hybrids in order to make it more productive and, and then impart that great heirloom taste. That we yeah. Have. So, Madame Marmont, a beautiful thing. I love it. Um, another, another, and oddly, as a, the top of my brain, um, tomato mania is all about heirlooms. But what we're also about is cool things and interesting and great taste, right? So the blue tomatoes, the indigo tomatoes, are a trend that is here and will stay and is fascinating and all of that. A, a purple tomato was found, you know, a wild one was found and, and bred into modern lines. And what we get now are tomatoes that have an eggplant coloring on the on the shoulders or and how do they taste or stripes down the side well they don't taste any different the whole idea was you know the first one the, the purple one that somebody found right i think it was isolated at oregon state forgive me if i'm wrong on that one but bottom line it was immediately shared and hybridizers all over got it and saw the saw the benefit of it it doesn't eat what it carries with it is the anthocyanin it's an anthocyanin it's the same right. one that's in blueberries okay. okay so it carries with it this great health benefit right plus it's beautiful and different and all the rest um, unfortunately, they tend to be a little late, which kind of bugs me sometimes. So they 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 don't hurry to ripen most mm -hmm. of them or many of them. But it's a whole new trend that's gonna stick, and it's phenomenal. The first ones out of the gate, I think people were excited about the blue, and I still find the early ones a little lacking. Um, however, the new ones, as they bred to more intensely flavored tomatoes, as they bred to this and that, 
there's a little cherry, again, industrial introduction, uh, it surprises us, but a little cherry called midnight snack. That is purple, half, half the top is purple, this eggplant color, and it's red around the bottom. And it is a jewel. And I've heard more of chat about that tomato this season than, than, I, than I have in a long time. Now here again, it'll test your patience because it's not early, right? But boy, is it, a, it, is, it is a special thing. And we're finding, we've got, you know, again, hybridizers just going crazy with the blues on stripes, on romas, on, <laughs> you know, you've got some really interesting things coming up in this whole genre. And uh, it's fascinating. And then um, if I can get one more in, yep. um, our tomato of the year last year is one called Thorburn's Terracotta. And it's a great plant story. It's the ultimate heirloom story. It was, it was introduced in like 1893, right? Appeared on the cover of some catalog, some grand catalog when catalogs were, you know, when catalogs were catalogs. And, and the, <laughs> Back and in the, the day. And the, and the, you know, that thing you waited for because it was your only link to, to this kind of product, right. right? Right. So 1893, this thing is introduced. It is terracotta color. It's caramel color, right? I don't know how it was received then. I don't have those reports. But, but the only report we get is that it soon or eventually disappeared from the market. Now, whether that was because everybody decided red was the color of the day or what, we don't know. Um, because I trust that it was the same as it was then. That's the whole idea. Um, it's extraordinary. It's beautiful. It's interesting. It's so tasty. It's early for a smallish beefsteak. Which okay. I give high points to that high points. Yep, yep. It was our tomato of the year. The story, the story goes, is that the seed was William Moyes Weaver, the great agricultural and, and horticultural historian and author and all the rest, um, was given the seed or found the seed sometime within the last twenty years. I won't get this all right, but brought it back to the market, and we saw it in a catalog probably five or four or five years ago, and were transfixed, and we grew it and went, oh my. It remains one of the coolest heirlooms and most and most unique stories. I mean, it's a it's a find. It's a it is historic, yeah. and uh, was you know was first seen over a century ago. Why is this important? Why do you think this is important in our world where we have so many, you know, graver, more serious challenges right. on on so right. many fronts, Scott? Why do these things matter? Yeah. I so love that because it, it does matter. And, mm. and, and you find me in the midst of, you know, I do seedling sales. I'm tomato man and we have seedling sales. But then I get approached by a woman two weeks ago at an event who said she planted her first tomato two years ago. And it happened, it was after her dad died. And we, we, we started talking and we both got teary. And, and she said, my dad never even grew a tomato. <laughs> He didn't grow a tomato. She right. said, I never grew one before. And I, and I looked at her and she said, I did it that year because I needed an expression. I needed something natural. I needed, I needed to do it. She said, as she looked at her 20 plants now in her cart, right? <laughs> she said, it's, it's my passion. She said, I do this and it fuels me. And it obviously, it obviously celebrates my dad. And I hear this kind of story all season long. And I just, you know, it's more than a plant. It's an exercise. It's um, it's a bit of a a celebration of yes, of family, of history, of all this stuff. And oh, you can hear it's it's I'm I'm more I'm vulnerable this time. I'm a, I'm a raw mess this time of the year. But it's but it's these kind of things. It's it's the family that has that like you said has a competition every year. And I get the story about oldest son goes off to college and he's sick. He can't he can't join. 
You know, he's like, this is what you've done for our family. This is what this exercise means to me. This is what, you know, whether it's my health or whether it's my, it's more than a plant. It's an experience. And it's because it feeds us. It's so elemental. And it's not, it's sure it requires a little bit of you, the farmer, but it's not so difficult. And it's something that can be eminently pleasurable and lovely. It's just, I, again, I'm, I'm often, and I have to remember that in the midst of logistics and all the rest of the things that we struggle through sometimes in the, in the season. And I just have, you know, this is more than just a, a seedling. This is more than a variety. This is more than all that. And that's why we do it. That's why we do it. It, it, it fuels us. It makes us happy. It meets our goals. And, and it just, uh, and again, we have to believe it's more than just a plan. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. It has been such a pleasure to speak with you. <laughs> well, thank you so much. It's, it's a pleasure to be here and be able to speak to a lot of ears who I know will get this, right? And, and who will appreciate it and, and, and hopefully, hopefully learn something. We're so glad to have shared. I'm so glad to have had this opportunity to share and, and we're so grateful to you. Scott Daig is the owner of Power Plant Garden Design in Ojai, California. A dedicated home gardener, he is a self-proclaimed tomato maniac. He leads an annual celebration called Tomato Mania, as well as being the author of a new book of the same name. Listen in again next week when we continue on the theme of what's for dinner this summer. We're joined by British food advocate and activist Claire Ratinon, author of How to Grow Your Dinner Without Leaving the House. Join us next week. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, and the podcast and its outreach is listener-supported over at cultivatingplace.com, where every week you will also find show notes for each week's program, including lots of great photographs and other resources. And hey, while you're there, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Join the more than 24,000 other gardeners out there in this Cultivating Place community. Subscribe to the podcast at cultivatingplace.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Thank you.